How many of you have made the same mistake more than once? Okay. How many of you have been tempted to lie about something that you know probably shouldn't be an issue? I mean, even to someone that you love, like your spouse, you forgot about something important, you... Um, uh, bought something maybe you shouldn't have, uh, you know, just something along those lines. Why is our default response then to say, well, I'm just going to try to cover it up? And more important than either of these two questions is the question, when God has said that he's going to do something, do we have to be the ones who finally make sure that it actually takes place? We're going to see the answers or some of the ideas related to these questions in the text that we're looking at this morning. Some people look at this story and they say, you know what? This is a lot like the story at the end of Genesis 12. Surely Abraham would not have done the same thing twice. So it's made up. The editor kind of had a big goof. He looked over the fact that there was two copies of the same story a few chapters apart. You only have to make that assumption if you're assuming that the book of Genesis was compiled by various groups of people, possibly long after the events that took place, and not something that was authored by God and recorded by Moses according to both things that God revealed to him and perhaps records that were passed down from Adam and others earlier in human history. If we take this as God's words and not as something that was the haphazard result of people trying to arrange things to meet their own purposes, it's certainly reasonable that, based on what we know of ourselves, based on what we know of Abraham, that he sinned in the same way twice. What else? Does this story connect with the passage before and the passage after it. I would argue that it does for these reasons. We have here a nation put in jeopardy. We have intercession. We have the question of a son and by whom that son will come. All of these are themes that we've seen in the previous three or four chapters. And so there is great continuity in this story, even though there's a little bit of an interlude between God's promise at the beginning of Genesis 18 and the fulfillment of that promise at chapter 21, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, even though there's this interlude with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and with this account of Abraham and the Canaanites, they are all contributing something to the story of Abraham's life and the things that God is doing through Abraham and, and those sorts of things. Abraham travels. I asked myself, why did he travel? The text doesn't say. We do know that Abraham was somewhat of a nomad. That was his background, and that was the story of his life, as we've seen revealed in the text. Perhaps the grazing grounds where he was there with his allies, um, not far from Sodom and Gomorrah, but certainly not right next to it, like Lot had lived. Perhaps uh, the grazing or the water or something like that had dried up, so he felt the need to move. But notice that he stays within the land of Canaan, though. He does not go down to Egypt again as previously, so he's trusting God to that degree, but he travels to a new place. Some have seen in the name of the place where he goes, Gerar, a wordplay, because 
the word ger uh, has to do with the idea of sojourner or wanderer. Uh, again, if so, then that is certainly not the main point, just an interesting aside. Verse 2 also is somewhat abrupt. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. You would expect there to be a little bit of a lead-in to that statement, right? So we have to sort of fill in the gaps, knowing what we know of Abraham from the earlier account in Genesis 12, and assume that the person asking the question is the ruler of the land in which he is settled. Because the end of the verse says, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So it seems that the king says, here's a beautiful woman who is connected with your household. I would like to add her to my royal harem. Um, and Abraham's response is, she is my sister. The name of the king was probably more of a title like uh, Pharaoh than it was his actual name. Abimelech means son of the king. Uh, we're going to see a different Abimelech in a few chapters in Genesis chapter 26. So this was probably just simply the ruler of that particular region, uh, an area where we will later see the Philistines in conflict with the Israelites. He sins and he takes Sarah. We've got to be asking ourselves at this point, Abraham, why would you do something so stupid? I say, why would, you, why would you be that emphatic? God has just said, you're going to have a son, and it's not going to be Ishmael, it's going to be through your wife, and you're going to be the father, and so if you send her off to be added to the royal harem of the king in the land in which you've settled, that calls into question all of the things that God has said are going to take place. Why does he do it? Well, he's going to say in verse 11, because it's out of fear. We'll talk more about that when we get to that point. But even at this point, when we've almost reached the fulfillment of God's promise, Abraham's faith is not yet perfect. Pause and think about that for a moment. Abraham's been following God for 24, 24 and a half years. He still does something like this. What does that mean for us? Don't think that just because you follow God for a long time that you're never going to sin again and everything's all in order and all of those sorts of things. We have to constantly be working in our relationship with God and growing in faith. Don't think that because someone does something foolish, even after they follow God for a long time, that automatically means they're not a Christian. Because this was a pretty foolish thing for Abraham to do. Some of the things that ought to go through our minds when we see what Abraham does here. The, the next verse is interesting. God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Abraham didn't tell him the truth, so God had to appear to him and tell him the truth. And God is appearing to this Canaanite king in the same sort of way that he's appeared to Abraham on various occasions in a vision, in a dream. This Canaanite king gets a vision from God. Look at his response. His response is astounding considering who he is and considering who Abraham is and what Abraham has just done. Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? 
when you're reading through the text, this ought to make you think about what it says at the end of chapter 18, verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. God is the same God when he comes to Abimelech, and Abimelech appeals to him on the same grounds. How much he knows of God and who God is and all those sorts of things, we don't entirely know. He could have just sort of been saying, you know what, it seems like there's a God who's angry with me, and I don't know which God it is, but he has the exact same response that Abraham had about God punishing Sodom and Gomorrah. Except there it's God's chosen one interceding for people, and here it's a pagan king interceding for people before God using almost the same language that Abraham did. I mean, that's astounding, right? So, verse 5. Did not he himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. He is basically pleading ignorance, which is not an excuse for sin, but it is a mitigating circumstance for the extent to which God carries out punishment against sin. From this, from this perspective. Jesus said, even of Sodom and Gomorrah, if they had seen the things that I am doing among you Israelites in Jerusalem and Judea, they would have repented long ago. They still were sinners. They still fell under God's judgment. They still deserved God's wrath. But there was a measure of ignorance that they possessed that the Israelites later on had no excuse when they treated Christ the way that they did. And even here, here's a pagan king who says, I may have done something wrong, but I didn't do it on purpose. And God says, I know. Verse 6. In the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Uh, in the context of the harem of a pagan king, uh, think about Solomon's wives. And Solomon wasn't technically a pagan king, although he behaved like one in a number of ways. Solomon had a thousand women attached to his household. Even if he spent one day with each of them, it's not like he was coming and seeing them every day. So there was the, the simple fact that if there was a large group of women attached to the king, he would not have necessarily spent every day with all of them because there just wasn't time in the day for that. So that's part of what God used to protect him. But even more specifically, it seems that God intervene, and for whatever reason, Abimelech did not go near her, did not defile her in any way, did not call into question God's promise that the child that was going to be born to her was Abraham's and not Abimelech's. So God protected her, and Abimelech, to some extent, was innocent in this. God says now, verse 7, Now therefore restore his wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. If you do not, you will surely die, you and all who are yours. There's some speculation when people look at this text that there's a kind of plague that comes upon his household uh, because of the statement, you will die. I'm not sure that we necessarily should see that. That may be reading back from the story of Exodus into this account. It seems that the primary punishment that God has on the household is uh, verse 18, the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of his household. If he knows that 
none of the women that are part of his household are going to have children. What does that imply? Sarah's at his house for a while. God protects Sarah. God protects Abimelech from sinning. God gives opportunity for him to make it right. And it's interesting that Abraham is spoken of as a prophet. Um, probably primarily in the sense of telling God's word to the people around him, because Old Testament prophets had two primary functions, to tell God's words that had already been revealed and to speak what was going to take place in the future. And from the account of Abraham's life, primarily what he was doing was potentially telling others of the promises that God had revealed to him and those sorts of things, more so than what Isaiah and Jeremiah and those did about prophesying coming judgment against people. But God has put Abraham in this role of speaking his word to the people around him, and now Abraham has gone and done this thing that is clearly foolish and could be described as sinful as well. And the pagan king is doing the right thing by interceding for his people, by pleading before God, by giving God reasons not to punish him, and God says, all right, here's how you can make it right. He didn't sit on it. Verse 8, he arose early in the morning. And when his servants hear of it, they're greatly frightened. Then he goes to Abraham. What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. This phrase, I think, ought to be striking in light of the previous chapter. One of the great sins of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah was their desire to do things to people that were not with their consent, that were things that ought not to be done, that were clearly sinful. And Abimelech is accusing Abraham in some respect of behaving like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, not in the same way, but in the same unwillingly setting Abimelech up for sin. Abraham has taken advantage of him. Abraham has preyed on him. Abraham has sinned against him. So then verse 10, what's gone on in your life that would make you act this way toward me? And so now we get a fuller explanation that helps cast some light on the account in Genesis 12 and also to explain this present circumstance. I thought, surely there is no fear of God in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Which raises several questions for us. Why would the fact that they didn't fear God have anything to do with whether Abraham was going to be safe or not? Had God protected Abraham at other places in his life? Yes. God helped him defeat an army. God protected him potentially from conflicts with the other Canaanites in the land where he was living previously. God could protect him again. He's been with God, following God, for at least 24 years now. He ought to know something of what God is like, something of God's power, something of the fact that I shouldn't be worrying about whether or not they're going to harm me. I don't have to lie to protect myself. The fact that there was no fear of God was really a sign that there was more fear of man than fear of God in his heart. Do you find that to be the case for you sometimes? Why do you lie? Why do you sin? Why do you lie or sin in connection with other people 
knowing that you really don't need to, everything's probably going to work out fine if you don't, why are we prone to do that? Because we want to cover ourselves, we want to protect ourselves, we feel like God can't work it out, so we've got to sort of bend the circumstance to our will. How much better would it be if when we recognize that we've done something wrong, or we um, think that someone might be angry with us, just to speak the truth. They might still be angry, they might not, we don't know that. Sometimes we exaggerate circumstances in our minds. But how much better to speak the truth and ask for forgiveness if we've sinned, or ideally avoid the circumstance in the first place so we don't have to do that, but if we find ourselves in a circumstance like him, uh, just don't make the mistake that Abraham did. Don't sin in the way that he did. The second thing that I think is a question in verse 11 is, they'll kill me because of my wife. Uh, Sarah's 89 at this point. And without any disrespect to any of you who are blessed with long life, from our perspective, it's, it might seem strange to us that he would say, I'm going to walk in this place, they're going to see my wife, and they're going to kill me because of her. Now, the reason that um, he gives back in chapter 12 was that she was very beautiful. We don't see that here. And obviously, um, there is a measure of beauty that has less to do with youthfulness and more to do with having spent your whole life with the same person, such that there is beauty even when the cares of living in this world have aged us. I think the primary focus in this case was not so much that they would take his wife because of her external appearance, although given the fact that she's going to live another several decades, she would have been more like older middle-aged and not like toward the end of her life by our standards because lifespans were longer in those days. I think the primary reason that there would have been this idea of killing him and taking his wife would have been Here's a guy who's clearly very rich. Here's um, all the things that he possesses. It's sort of more the idea of, let's kill him and take all of the things that belong to him, perhaps. So, against the argument that says, well, this story is clearly impossible because it's not like she was 20, so why would anybody want to marry her? It, it, it would be argued that it would be more, she, as the greatest of his possessions, would be the things attached to his household uh, would be taken away from him. Then he gives an explanation. Oh, this makes it all okay. She actually is my sister. Uh, the daughter of my father, father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Quick aside on marriage practices in this day versus marriage practices today. Uh, as I've mentioned before, Clearly, Cain married one of his sisters because there were no other women for him to marry because it was the beginning of the human race. Okay? We come to Abraham's day and he marries his half-sister. Uh, same father, different mother. 
was that sinful? There was no law to say that it was sinful. There was no knowledge of the things that we know today, and especially as we've gone generations, you know, centuries past that, thousands of years past that. Um, we're at a point today where if you marry one of your close relatives, in all likelihood, the children of that marriage will have severe problems. This was true even in the 16, 17, 1800s. The royal families of England and other places would intermarry, and that contributed to a lot of the madness and diseases and problems that, that were going on in their lives. Morally speaking, where we stand today, even though it was a provision of the law that you could not marry a close relative, and even though um, we're not under the law, there are other laws today that basically say you can't marry someone who is a close relative for the, some of those reasons. It was not wrong for him to do this, per se, in his day, knowing what he knew and where they were in terms of the commands that God had given to him. It would be wrong for someone today to do it legally, in terms of wisdom, just morally speaking, you should not do this today. Okay? But he gives this as the reason for his deception. I'm not actually deceiving you because she is my sister. But that wasn't the question that Abimelech was asking him. When Abimelech comes and says, here's this woman attached to your household, I want to add her to my my harem, my group of women who are my wives. He wasn't asking, what's the precise nature of, is she your cousin, is she your half-sister, is she whatever? He wants to know, is she married so I can add her to my group of wives? And so Abraham is focusing on the wrong thing. He's not being honest with Abimelech. Apparently, this was not the first time that he had done it. Look at verse 13. When God caused me to wander, some would argue that the phrase where it says God should be argued the gods. If so, then he's sort of taking it to Abimelech's level and, and not really even being honest and, and professing faith in the one true God. But regardless, I said this is the kindness you will show to me everywhere we go, say he is my brother. So people will look at this passage and say, surely he wouldn't do the same thing twice. It seems it happened more than twice. These are just the two instances that are recorded for us. This was an ongoing lack of faith in Abraham's life on this specific point. Will God protect me? Can God secure the son that he has promised to me? And if we think that that had no effect down the line, Isaac's going to do the same thing in chapter 26 because he's watched his dad do it. Or at least heard an account of it. Now that raises an interesting question for us. How does Isaac know of this if he's not even born yet in the second account that we have recorded? Possibly Abraham does it one more time. Possibly Ishmael tells him out of spite later on. Or Hagar. We don't know. But in some respect, Isaac absorbed this example of his father, and I don't think it's just like a genetic curse, like some people talk about sin. I think somehow he became aware of this, thought it was a good idea, and did it himself, except in his case it was actually a lie and not a deception like for Abraham. Look at what Abimelech does. 
God has said, deal with this immediately. What does Abimelech do to deal with it? He took sheep and oxen and male and female servants, gave them to Abraham, and restored his wife Sarah to him. He offers him wealth in the restoration of his wife. He has insulted and shamed Abraham. Something has to be done to make that right, so he gives him great wealth as a part of making that right. He says, go wherever you want. Perhaps the implication, as long as it's not right next to where I live, but go wherever you want in this land, settle. I'm not going to interfere with you. I'm, I'm, I recognize your God is greater than I can deal with, so go wherever you want. Then to Sarah, he says, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. He's basically saying, here's this great sum of money as a vindication of saying, I've dealt with any kind of offense against him. I never came near you. If anybody becomes aware of this, they should know that I was innocent in this, and it's been taken care of. Look at verse 17. Abraham prayed to God. God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. And then verse 18, we already talked about, the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. God uses Abraham to pray for a pagan king so that his wives will have children when Abraham's own wife has not had children. In response to his sinful deception of this pagan king. I mean, the ironies abound in this story. The points of application and, and rebuke just are very clear, I think, in the text. Especially when it says in verse 21 or chapter 21, verse 1, immediately after this, then the Lord took note of Sarah. He did for Sarah, Sarah conceived. Why didn't Sarah conceive until after all this happened? I think God was teaching Abraham something. What are the takeaways for us from this story? It is possible for us to sin in the same foolish way more than once. We shouldn't make excuses for it. We shouldn't say, well, this is just this bad habit I can't break. It's possible for us to sin in the same foolish way more than once. What else? It is possible for that repeated sin to be the result of unbelief. Because when Abraham said, there's no fear of God in this place, that's an excuse. What he really means is, I didn't believe God could protect me, so I had to come up with my own scheme. So, we can sin more than once. Probably the reason for that sinning more than once is because we're not trusting God like we should. And then the amazing thing is, God can work despite our sin to accomplish the thing that he was going to do. The main thing we ought to take away from this story is not, Abraham, why would you do this? Not, Abraham, it's amazing that, that all of this worked out, kind of. It's, God had made a promise, God was going to secure that promise, God kept Abimelech from touching Sarah, God restored her to Abraham, God fulfilled the promise in the very next chapter. God protected the promise they had made to Abraham to make sure that it would come to pass. Despite Abraham, despite Sarah, despite all of the potential threats to the fulfillment of God's promise. 
So an ongoing theme in the book of Genesis is God makes promises and he keeps them no matter what. Despite people who are dishonest and unfaithful and wavering in faith and all of those sorts of things. And yes, Abraham demonstrated great faith. He left his father's house. He went to the land of Canaan. He offered sacrifices. He accepted the covenant of circumcision. He did all of these things that God required him to do. But there were still a lot of points along the way when he sinned or he wavered in faith or all those sorts of things. The Bible gives us a picture of people who are not perfect but who walk with God and who are hopefully growing in faith. Abraham's greatest test of faith is not going to come until a few chapters later when he is told by God to offer Isaac his son on the altar. If anything was a great threat to the promise that God had made, that was, and it came from God himself. And he had grown in faith enough by that point that he did readily what God had asked, seemingly without questions and so on, and God still kept his promise. But from this story, repeated sin, driven by fear and unbelief, through which God protected his promise by protecting the people to whom he had made that promise. So who really gets the glory from a story like this? Not the people. Which is funny because when you come to the Jews in their confrontation of Jesus... Who do they hold up as an example? We're sons of Abraham. You are. You're sinful. And here's the Savior standing right in front of you. Will you believe in him? So that's another point we ought to ask ourselves. If even one of the greatest of the followers of God did things like this, all of us need a Savior. So have you begun to trust in Jesus, turning away from your sin, turning to God? If you have, are you learning, as Romans and other passages would say, are you learning from the sinful choices of people in stories like this so that you don't do the same thing? Are you asking yourself, why do I sin? And saying, God, help me not to have the fear and unbelief that leads to sin. These are all lessons that we can take away from a passage like this. God protects his promises. Doesn't give us an excuse to do sinful and foolish things. But it does remind us that we serve a great God. Let's pray. Lord, it's easy to try to want to explain a passage like this because it doesn't put Abraham in a positive light. But when we come face to face with the fact that we may have been following you for decades and we still sin, it ought to, in humility, drive us to continue to repent, to continue to turn back to you, to marvel at your mercy and your grace toward us, to be amazed by the way that you continue to work in our lives despite our imperfections and our failings, to give you the glory that you deserve, because we certainly can't take any of the credit for it. Lord, hopefully by your grace we are increasing in faith and not making the same sinful and foolish choices throughout the course of our lives. When we do, help us to turn back to you. Lord, 
help us to grow in faith, that we might be an example, because certainly this undermined Abraham's testimony, his opportunity to say, here is my God, and he protects me, and he watches out for me, and you got that message through to Abimelech despite Abraham, but how much better would it have been if you could have done it through Abraham? And the same is true for us. You can save people even if those who profess to be Christians don't act like it. But how much difficulty does that create in us trying to witness faithfully to people around us? Lord, help us to, even though we don't see a record of it in this story, it's certainly a pattern throughout your word. Help us to repent when we sin, that our testimony might be restored, that you might be glorified, that more people might rejoice at the way that you're working in the circumstances of our lives that we might see that you protect your promises as you protect your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.